Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 44. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. Age never mind it is a truth how long it was. You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. We're beginning this podcast with thoughts from David Roper, taken from his eMusings blog site. Courage. With God we shall do valiantly, for he it is who will tread down our foes. That's Psalm 108, 13. As a child, I loved the Wizard of Oz, and being a rather small and timid chap, was drawn to the cowardly lion. In the end, as you know, the lion was given a medal for bravery. Look what it says, he exclaimed. Courage! Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? Physical courage is one thing, moral courage is another. Sometimes the hardest battles are fought within. Emily Dickinson wrote, To fight aloud is very brave, but gallanter, I know, who charge within the bosom the cavalry of woe. Fortitude is the name we give to this virtue. Fortitude is not simply one of the virtues. It's the virtue that gives strength to all the others. Chastity, honesty, patience, mercy are hard-earned virtues virtues in a world like ours. It's fortitude that enables us to endure, to stand immovable in the midst of danger. Fortitude is, quote, a long obedience in the right direction, unquote. It is doing the right thing over the long haul despite the consequences. Fortitude is sticking with a hard marriage, staying in a small place when prominence beckons, refusing to betray a moral principle just to get along or to get ahead. We can be brave and do the right thing for God is with us in the battle, and he it is who will tread down our foes. I think of a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Last Battle. One of the children, Jill Pohl, asks, What do you think is inside the stable? Who knows? Tyrion replied. Two calorimenes with drawn swords, as likely as not, one on each side of the door. There's no knowing. But courage, child, we are all between the paws of the true Aslan. Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? We finished Chapter 10 of Winds of Wyoming in the last podcast with Kate sensing someone else is in her cabin. Here's the first half of Chapter 11. Kate grabbed a long-handled backbrush from the shower and spun around. But there was no one there. She gripped the brush in her hand and stepped toward the doorway. He had to be in the other room. But something in her peripheral vision caught her attention. She twisted to see a snake coiled in the bathroom sink. Screaming, she yanked the shower curtain back and jumped into the ankle-deep bathwater. One foot slid out from under her, but she righted herself 
and gulped down another shriek to listen for snake sounds. Did scales scraping across the floor make noise? Was it stealthily slithering toward the tub? Would it rattle or hiss when it got close? All she could hear was her heart pounding in her ears. She peered around the curtain. The snake was still there. She stared at the fat, mottled reptile, then at the window. One of the ranch hands had replaced the glass early in the week. Had she left it open, or... Of course, Ramsay was on the loose again. The snake didn't move. Was it sick? Or pretending to sleep? Had it chosen her sink to hibernate in? No, probably not. Animals didn't hibernate in the summer. At least she didn't know of any that did that. She turned off the water and sloshed out of the tub, never taking her focus off the intruder. And she closed and locked the window, just in case the snake had a mate that might come looking for it. Or Ramsay returned. Using a bath towel, she wiped rainwater from the windowsill, all the while watching the sink. Would the slimy creature lunge at her when she tried to leave the room? She reached to hang the towel on the rack. No way could she take a bath now. And she slipped in the water that puddled beside the bathtub. Kate fell. She'd barely hit the floor when she looked up to see if the snake was coming for her. But she didn't see a snake head peering over the top of the cabinet, its forked fangs searching for her scent. Yanking the towel off the rack, she crawled as fast as she could past the sink to the doorway, jumped to her feet, and spun around. The snake was still there. She slammed the door shut, stuffed the towel into the crack at the bottom, and darted for her bedroom. As she stepped into a pair of dry jeans, she remembered her promise to Mike and Laura to call for help if Ramsey returned. But he wasn't in the cabin. And after seeing Mike with Tara, she didn't feel comfortable asking him to deal with the reptile. Laura, she knew, would be more than glad to send someone to help her. But she had more important things to think about. Manuel. He'd know what to do. Plus, he wouldn't blab about it to the others, even if they talked to him, which wasn't likely. She finished dressing and hurried through the rain to the dining hall. Just as she expected, she found the boy eating by himself, head down. She sat across from him. Hi, Manuel. He looked up. A smile brightened his sad face. Hi, Kate. I've been wanting to talk to you. He leaned forward. I think Trudy likes me. She grinned. What makes you think that? Well, just a little bit ago. A loud snarl interrupted him. Kate turned to the sound and saw Cyrus stomping toward them. The bristling man grasped the end of the table and bent nose to nose with Kate. Aren't you just a wee bit late? Sorry, Cyrus. She retreated from the angry man as far as she could without falling backward. I had to take a bath before I came to lunch. Well, an almost bath. He didn't need to know about the snake. A bath? His voice grew louder. What in the devil were you doing bathing in the middle of the day? She felt her cheeks flame. If you must know, I got caught in the rain after feeding Trudy. I smelled like a wet buffalo. Cyrus's muscles bunched into visible knots under his shirt. Should have known. He stabbed a finger at her forehead. Had a feeling you'd use those university smarts of yours to weasel out of work. All you do is sit in the corral, coddling that blasted buffalo all the live long day. You ain't worth a bucket of beans around this ranch. Before she could protest, Cyrus stormed back into the kitchen. He banged the door shut and yelled through the serving window. This is a ranch, not a resort. Hands who don't work don't eat. Kitchen closed. He slammed the serving window cover down with a loud thwack that resounded through the dining hall. Kate covered her mouth with her hands and dropped her voice to a whisper. I forgot I was on lunch duty, Manuel.
Should I go wash dishes? She could feel the onlooker's curious stares. Better stay away. He's better than a cornered buffalo. He's better than a cornered bull. You're right. I'll apologize later. I can't believe I did that. As the heat faded from her face and the other diners returned to their meal, she remembered the reason she'd come to the dining hall. I need a favor, Manuel. It'll just take a few minutes. Could you meet me at the office later this afternoon? Kate wiped her muddy shoes on the mat outside the lobby and hurried to the office. The moment she walked in, Coach handed her an envelope. She dried her hands on her jeans before she took it. What's this? Your first WP paycheck, Katie Ann. Already? Laura says she usually hands out checks on Friday, but they're all printed and signed, so you might as well have yours now. Thank you. Her first paycheck in years. She'd have to tell Aunt Mary, who would be thrilled and proud of her. Laura turned from her computer. The closest bank is in Copperville. If you want to open an account, you should do it this afternoon. Life is about to get hectic around here. But but I wouldn't be doing my job or helping with Trudy if I went to town. Cyrus says... Laura's brow furrowed. Cyrus says what? I, I just want to be useful to the ranch, not a nuisance or a moocher. Cyrus can get cranky, Kate, Laura said. I hope he isn't... He didn't suggest you're not valuable to us. In the few days you've been with us, you've displayed a strong work ethic. Thanks, but but I forgot I was supposed to help with lunch today. He's really, really mad at me. Oh, I can imagine, and I'm sure I'll hear about it. However, you're not the first person to miss kitchen duty. You deserve that paycheck, no matter what he says. So skedaddle out of here and go open a bank account. Kate laughed. I'll skedaddle after the rain stops and after I add those new contacts to the database. Also, if you don't mind, I'd like to send a quick email to my friend who's keeping an eye on my aunt for me. Feel free to write your friend, but remember the bank closes at 4.30. Laura glanced at the clock on the wall. Our mountain cloud bursts are usually short-lived, so you should have plenty of time. She stood. I need to do a final check of the cabins. I'll see you later. When you return from town, right? Yes, ma'am. Before leaving, Laura picked up a thick manila envelope from her desk and locked a drawer and slipped it inside. She relocked the drawer and dropped the key into the top drawer. I need to get down the bank, too. Coach left shortly after Laura. Kate tried to concentrate on the database, but the image of the serpent in her sink returned again and again. Was it still there, or was it crawling around her bathroom? Maybe it had already moved to moved the towel aside and was slinking through her cabin, hunting for a place to... She glanced about the room, searching for a diversion, and saw the drawer Laura had just locked. How much cash did the ranch keep on hand? She stepped into the hallway and checked both directions. Back at Laura's desk, she sorted through the contents of the top drawer, not a paperclip out of place. However, the key was not immediately apparent. She dug into the stick pins. They poked at her fingers, but she burrowed until she felt the cool metal of the key. Plucking it from the tray, she opened the locked drawer, slipped the key into her pocket, and picked up the envelope. She's about to open it when she heard a knock. Jerking her attention to the doorway, she saw Manuel eyeing her, a quizzical expression in his dark eyes. Her stomach lurched. Uh, I, Manuel? She dropped the envelope back into the drawer and closed it. She'd lock it later. Just looking for a pencil. Be right there. 
By the time she'd shut down the computer and secured the door that led to the lobby, her heartbeat had almost returned to normal. She followed Manuel out of the office. I need your help at my cabin. She turned to lock the door. It's a unique problem, but I think you're the man to tackle it. Continuing with Treasure Island, remember the boy and his mother are under the bridge. Chapter 5, The Last of the Blind Man. My curiosity, in a sense, was stronger than my fear, for I could not remain where I was, but crept back to the bank again, whence, sheltering my head behind a bush of broom, I might command the road before our door. I was scarcely in position ere my enemies began to arrive, seven or eight of them running hard, their feet beating out of time along the road and the man with the lantern, some paces in front. Three men ran together, hand in hand, and I made out even through the the mist that the middle man of this trio was the blind beggar. The next moment his voice showed me that I was right. Down with the door, he cried. Aye, aye, sir answered two or three, and a rush was made upon the Admiral Benbow, the lantern-bearer following, and then I could see them pause and hear speeches passed in a lower key, as if they were surprised to find the door open. But the pause was brief, for the blind man again issued his commands. His voice sounded louder and higher, as if he were afire with eagerness and rage. In, 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 he shouted, and cursed them for their delay. Four or five of them obeyed at once, two remaining on the road with the formidable beggar. There was a pause, then a cry of surprise, and then a voice shouting from the house, Bill's dead! But the blind man swore at them again for their delay. Search him, some of you shirking lubbers, and the rest of you aloft and get the chest, he cried. I could hear their feet rattling up our old stairs, so that the house must have shook with it. Promptly afterwards, fresh sounds of astonishment arose. The window of the captain's room was thrown open with a slam and a jingle of broken glass, and a man leaned out into the moonlight, head and shoulders, and addressed the blind beggar on the road below him. Pew! he cried. They've been before us. Someone's turned the chest out, alow and aloft. Is it there? roared Pew. The money's there. The blind man cursed the money. Flint's first, I mean, he cried. We don't see it here no how, returned the man. Here, you below there, is it on Bill? cried the blind man again. At that, another, another fellow, probably him who had remained below to search the captain's body, came to the door of the inn. Bill's been overhauled already, said he. Nothing left. It's these people of the inn. It's that boy. I wish I had put his eyes out, cried the blind man, Pew. There were no time ago. They had the door bolted when I tried it. Scatter, lads, and find them. Sure enough, they left their glim here, said the fellow from the window. Scatter and find them. Rout the house out, reiterated Pew, striking with his stick upon the road. Then there followed a great to-do through all our old inn, heavy feet pounding to and fro, furniture thrown over, doors kicked in, 
until the very rocks re-echoed and the men came out again, one after another, on the road and declared that we were nowhere to be found. And just the same whistle that had alarmed my mother and myself over the dead captain's money was once more clearly audible through the night, but this time twice repeated. I had thought it to be the blind man's trumpet, so to speak, summoning his crew to the assault, but I now found that it was a signal from the hillside towards the hamlet, and from its effect upon the buccaneers, a signal to warn them of approaching danger. There's Dirk again, said one. Twice. We'll have to budge, mates. Budge, you skulk, cried Pew. Dirk was a fool and a coward from the first. You wouldn't mind him. They must be close by. They can't be far. You have your hands on it. Scatter and look for them. Dogs? Oh, shiver my soul, he cried. If I had eyes. This appeal seemed to produce some effect, for two of the fellows began to look here and there among the lumber, but half-heartedly, I thought, and with half an eye to their own danger all the time, while the rest stood irresolute on the road. You have your hands on thousands, you fools, and you'd hang a leg. You'd be as rich as kings if you could find it, and you know it's here, and you stand there skulking. There wasn't one of you dared face Bill, and I did it, a blind man and I'm to lose my chance for you. I'm to be a poor, crawling beggar, sponging for rum when I might be rolling in a coach. If you had the pluck of a weevil in a biscuit, you would catch them still. Hang it, Pew. We've got the doubloons, grumbled one. They might have hid the blessed thing, said another. Take the Georges, Pew, and don't stand there squalling. Squalling was the word for it. Pew's anger rose so high at these objections till at last, his passion completely taking the upper hand, he struck at them right and left in his blindness and his stick sounded heavily on more than one. These, in their turn, cursed back at the blind miscreant, threatening him in horrid terms and tried in vain to catch the stick and wrest it from his grasp. This quarrel was the saving of us. For while it was still raging, another sound came from the top of the hill on the side of the hamlet, the tramp of horses galloping. Almost at the same time, a pistol shot, flash and report, came from the hedge side, and that was plainly the last signal of danger. For the buccaneers turned at once and ran, separating in every direction, one seaward along the cove, one slant across the hill, and so on, so that in half a minute, not a sign of them remained but Pew. Him they had deserted, whether in sheer panic or out of revenge for his ill words and blows, I know not. But there he remained behind, tapping up and down the road in a frenzy, and groping and calling for his comrades. Finally he took a wrong turn and ran a few steps past me, towards the hamlet, crying, Johnny! Black Dog! Dirk! and other names. You won't leave old Pew, mates! Not old Pew! Just then the noise of horses topped the rise, and four or five riders came in sight in the moonlight and swept at full gallop down the slope. At this, Pew saw his error, turned with a scream, and ran straight for the ditch into which he rolled. But he was on his feet again in a second and made another dash, now utterly bewildered, right under the nearest of the coming horses. The rider tried to save him, but in vain. Down went Pew with a cry that rang high into the night, and the four hoofs trampled and spurned him and passed by. 
He fell on his side, then gently collapsed upon his face and moved no more. I leaped to my feet and hailed the riders. They were pulling up, at any rate, horrified at the accident, and I soon saw what they were. One, tailing out behind the rest, was a lad that had gone from the hamlet to Dr. Livesey's. The rest were revenue officers, whom he had met by the way and with whom he had had the intelligence to return at once. Some news of the lugger in Kitt's Hole had found its way to Supervisor Dance and set him forth that night in our direction, and to that circumstance my mother and I owed our preservation from death. Pew was dead, stone dead. As for my mother, when we had carried her up to the hamlet, a little cold water and salts, and that soon brought her back again, and she was none the worse for her terror, though she still continued to deplore the balance of the money. In the meantime, the supervisor rode on as fast as he could to Kit's hole, but his men had to dismount and grope down the dingle, leading and sometimes supporting their horses and in continual fear of ambushes. So it was no great matter for surprise that when they got down to the hole, the lugger was already underway, though still close in. He hailed her. A voice replied, telling him to keep out of the moonlight or he would get some lead in him, and at the same time a bullet whistled close by his arm. Soon after, the lugger doubled the point and disappeared. Mr. Dance stood there, as he said, like a fish out of water, and all he could do was to dispatch a man to to warn the cutter. And that, said he, is just about as good as nothing. They've got off clean, and there's an end. Only, he added, I'm glad I trod on Master Pew's corns. For by this time he had heard my story. I went back with him to the Admiral Benbow, and you cannot imagine a house in such a state of smash. The very clock had been thrown down by these fellows in their furious hunt after my mother and myself. And though nothing had actually been taken away except the captain's money bag and a little silver from the till, I could see at once that we were ruined. Mr. Dance could make nothing of the scene. They got the money, you say? Well then, Hawkins, what in fortune were they after? More money, I suppose? No, sir, not money, I think, replied I. In fact, sir, I believe I have the thing in my breast pocket. And to tell you the truth, I should like to get it put in safety. To be sure, boy, quite right, said he. I'll take it, if you like. I thought perhaps Dr. Livesey, I began. Perfectly right, he interrupted very cheerily. Perfectly right, a gentleman and a magistrate. And now I come to think of it, I might as well ride round there myself and report to him or squire. Master Pew's dead, when all's done. Not that I regret it, but he's dead, you see, and people will make it out against an officer of His Majesty's revenue, if make it out they can. Now I'll tell you, Hawkins, if you like, I'll take you along. I thanked him heartily for the offer, and we walked back to the hamlet where the horses were. By the time I had told Mother of my purpose, they were all in the saddle. Dogger, said Mr. Dance, you have a good horse. Take up this lad behind you. As soon as I was mounted, holding on to Dogger's belt, the supervisor gave the word, and the party struck out at a bouncing trot on the road to Dr. Livesey's house. For our kid chuckles, 
I've been reading from the journals I kept when our three children were very, very small. Today, we're featuring three-year-old Toby comments. Toby loved to sing. Two of his songs were Oh, How I Love Tasha, Tasha was our dog, and B-I-N-G-O, I Stand Alone in the Word of God. (laughs) Um, One day, it just must have been a revelation to Toby, he said to me, you're not a babysitter, you're a mom. Glad he figured that out. (laughs) When I tried to convince Toby that he was my munchkin, he said, you're just making a tease. (laughs) And to give you an idea of his three-year-old vocabulary, um, here's kind of a list of what he was saying. Toby says that one wears duds on Sunday. He finds big lugs in his soup. His kitten snugs him, and when he saw a noisy yellow Volkswagen bug, he called it a bubble car. And let's see, one day when I was taking his sister's braids out, unwinding the braids in her hair, Toby said, Ramondo, Ramondo, let down your hair. And if I remember right, (laughs) Ramondo was the neighbor boy, (laughs) but he had the idea. Uh, According to Toby, everything ran on batteries, including the water faucet. Uh, He said that all boys are brothers and all girls are she's. And two final ones. One day when he was thirsty, he asked for a plain piece of water. (laughs) And he also said, I'm going to grow so big that I break. Here's another one of David Roper's e-musings called Home. Most of my boyhood was spent in the cedar breaks in North Texas. The countryside is built up now. But back then it was mostly ranch land, rolling chalk hills redolent with cedar trees and junipers. The woods were a boy's paradise with wonderful places to explore. At night, when I was in bed on our screened-in porch, I'd listen to the coyotes howl and exult in the fact that I was home rather than out in the dark where the wild things were. One of my favorite daytime pastimes was walking the creek. It was a special stream, an oasis in a dry land. The brook ran clear most of the year and supported lush stands of cottonwoods and willows. When I think about that creek today, I think of deep shade, long walks, solitude, and friendly dogs. I have memories of leaving home early in the morning with my yellow hound, my single-shot 410, a bag lunch that my mother made, and walking to the springhead or downstream to where the creek emptied into the lake. Those hikes were high adventure for me. At least I made them adventure. There were rocks to skip, birds to watch, dams to build, tracks to follow, squirrels to flush along the way. And then if I made it to the mouth of the creek... My dog and I would sit and share our lunch while we watched the biplanes land across the lake. We'd linger as long as we could, but only so long, for my father wanted me home before the sun went down. The shadows grew long, and the hollows got dark fast in the cedar breaks. 
I'd be wishing along the way that I was home. Though weary, I'd trudge on. It was the hope of going home that kept me going. Our house sat on a hill behind some trees, but I could always see the light on the porch as I made my way through the woods in the gathering dusk. The light was always on until all the family was in. Often my father would be sitting on the back porch reading the newspaper, waiting for me. How did it go? he'd ask. Pretty good, I'd say. But it sure is good to be home. It's been a long time since I walked that creek, but the memories live on and fill me with what Mole called divine discontent and longing. They make me think of another long and arduous journey, the one I'm making now. But I know that at the end of the trail, there's a caring father and my eternal home. I'm a little weary these days, but it's the thought of going home that keeps me going. As I look back on my life, I must say that it has had its ups and downs. Like John Bunyan's Pilgrim, I've gone on sometimes comfortably, sometimes sighingly. But taken as a whole, it's been a pretty good trip. One of these days, though, it'll start to get dark and I'll head for home. I'm expected there. The light is on and my father is waiting for me. How did it go? he'll ask. Pretty good, I'll say. But it sure is good to be home. Thanks. That was beautiful. You can read more of David Roper's e-musings at davidroper.blogspot.com. That's D-A-V-I-D-R-O-P-E-R, blogspot.com. Pretty simple. We're going to finish with a fun little story I think you'll enjoy. An elderly couple had been experiencing declining memories, so they decided to take a power memory class where one is taught to remember things by association. A few days after the class, the old man was outside talking with his neighbor about how much the class had helped him. What was the name of the instructor? asked the neighbor. Oh, um, let's see, the old man pondered. You know that flower, you know, the one that smells really nice, but has those prickly thorns? What's that flower's name? A rose, asked the neighbor. Yes, that's it, replied the old man. He then turned toward his house and shouted, Hey, Rose, what's the name of the instructor we took the memory class from? (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it for me and, and what's her name? Oh, my. Well, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.